Chapter 3, Part 2 of Collected Papers on Analytical Psychology. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Geoffrey DeSena, Cordelain. Collected Papers on Analytical Psychology by Carl Gustav Jung. Translated by Constance Ellen Long, 1867-1923. Chapter 3. Case 3. A thirty-six-year-old peasant woman of average intelligence, healthy appearance, and robust build. Mother of three healthy children. Comfortable family circumstances, patient comes to the hospital for treatment for the following reasons. For some weeks, she has been terribly wretched and anxious, has been sleeping badly, has terrifying dreams, and suffers also during the day from anxiety and depression. All these things are admittedly without foundation, she herself is surprised at them, and must admit her husband is perfectly right when he insists they are all, quote, stuff and nonsense, end quote. All the same, she cannot get away from them. Strange ideas come to her, too. She is going to die and is going to hell. She gets on very well with her husband. The psychoanalytic examination of the case immediately brought the following some weeks before. She happened to take up some religious tracts which had long lain about the house unread. There she read that swearers would go to hell. She took this very much to heart. She has since thought it incumbent on her to prevent people swearing, or she herself will go to hell. About a fortnight before she read these tracts, her father, who lived with her, suddenly died from a stroke. She was not actually present at his death, but arrived when he was already dead. Her terror and grief were very great. The days following the death, she thought much about it all, wondering why her father had to meet his end so abruptly. In the midst of such meditations, it suddenly occurred to her that the last words she had heard her father say were, quote, I also am one of those who have fallen from the cart into the devil's clutches, end quote. The remembrance filled her with grief, and she recalled how often her father had sworn savagely. She wondered then whether there really were a life after death, and whether her father were in heaven or hell. During these musings, she came across the tracts and began to read them, getting to the place where it said that swearers go to hell. Then came upon her great fear and terror. She overwhelmed herself with reproaches. She ought to have stopped her father's swearing, deserved punishment for her neglect. She would die and would be condemned to hell. Henceforth, she was full of sorrow, moody, tormented her husband with this obsessive idea, and renounced all joy and happiness. The patient's life history, reproduced partly in her own words, is as follows. She is the youngest of five brothers and sisters, and was always her father's favourite. The father gave her everything she wanted if he possibly could. For instance, if she wanted a new dress and her mother refused it, she could be sure her father would bring her one next time he went to town. The mother died rather early. At twenty-four, the patient married the man of her choice, against her father's wishes. The father simply disapproved of her choice, although he had nothing particular against the man. After the wedding, she made her father come and live with them. That seemed a matter of course, she said, since the other relations had never suggested having him live with them. The father was a quarrelsome swearer and drunkard. Husband and father-in-law, as may easily be imagined, got on extremely badly together. The patient would always meekly fetch her father's spirits from the inn, although this gave rise perpetually to anger and altercations. But she finds her husband, quote, all right, end quote. He is a good, patient fellow with only one failing. He does not obey her father enough. She finds that incomprehensible and would rather have her husband knuckle under to her father. All said and done, father is still father. 
in the frequent quarrels, she always took her father's part. But she has nothing to say against her husband, and he is usually right in his protests. But one must help one's father. Soon it began to seem to her that she had sinned against her father by marrying against his will, and she often felt, after one of these incessant wrangles, that her love for her husband had quite vanished. And since her father's death it is impossible to love her husband any longer, for his disobedience was the most frequent occasion of her father's fits of raging and swearing. At one time, the quarrelling became too painful for the husband, and he induced his wife to find rooms for her father elsewhere, where he lived for two years. During this time, husband and wife lived together peaceably and happily. But by degrees, the patient began to reproach herself for letting her father live alone. In spite of everything, he was her father. And in the end, despite the husband's protests, she fetched him home again because, as she said, in truth, she did love her father better than her husband. Scarcely was the old man back in the house before strife was renewed, and so it went on till the father's sudden death. After this recital, she broke out into a whole series of lamentations. She must separate from her husband. She would have done it long ago if it were not for the children. She had, indeed, done an ill deed, committed a very great sin, when she married her husband against her father's wish. She ought to have taken the man whom her father had wanted her to have. He certainly would have obeyed her father, and then everything would have been right. Oh, her husband was not by a long way so kind as her father. She could do anything with her father, but not with her husband. Her father had given her everything she wanted. Now she would, best of all, like to die, so that she might be with her father. When this outburst was over, I inquired eagerly on what grounds she had refused the husband her father had suggested to her. The father, a small peasant on a lean little farm, had taken as a servant, just at the time when his youngest daughter came into the world, a miserable little boy, a foundling. The boy developed in most unpleasant fashion. He was so stupid that he could not learn to read or write or even speak quite properly. He was an absolute idiot. As he approached manhood, there developed on his neck a series of ulcers, some of which opened and continually discharged pus, giving such a dirty, ugly creature a horrible appearance. His intelligence did not grow with his years, so he stayed on his servant, in the peasant's house, without any recognised wage. To this youth the father wanted to marry his favourite daughter. The girl, fortunately, had not been disposed to yield, but now she regretted it, since this idiot would unquestionably have been more obedient to her father than her good man had been. Here, as in the foregoing case, it must be clearly understood that the patient is not at all weak-minded. Both possess normal intelligence, which unfortunately the blinkers of the infantile constellation prevent their using, that appears with quite remarkable clearness in this patient's life story. The father's authority is never questioned. It makes not the least difference that he is a quarrelsome drunkard. The obvious cause of all the quarrels and disturbances, on the contrary, the lawful husband must give way to the bogey. And at last our patient even comes to regret that her father did not succeed in completely destroying her life's happiness. So now she sets about doing that herself through her neurosis, which compels her in the wish to die, that she may go to hell, whither it be noted the father has already betaken himself. If we are ever disposed to see some demonic power at work, controlling mortal destiny, surely we can see it here in these melancholy silent tragedies, working themselves out slowly, torturingly, in the sick souls of our neurotics. Some, step by step, continually struggling against the unseen powers, do free themselves from the clutches of the demon who forces his unsuspecting victims from one savage mischance to another. Others rise up and win to freedom, only to be dragged back later to the old paths, 
caught in the noose of the neurosis. You cannot even maintain that these unhappy people are neurotic or degenerates. If we normal people examine our lives from the psychoanalytic standpoint, we too perceive how a mighty hand guides us insensibly to our destiny, and not always is this hand a kindly one. We often call it the hand of God or of the devil, for the power of the infantile constellation has become mighty during the course of the centuries in affording support and proof to all the religions. But all this does not go so far as to say that we must cast the blame of inherited sins upon our parents. A sensitive child whose intuition is only too quick in reflecting in his own soul, all the excesses of his parents must lay the blame for his fate on his own characteristics. But, as our last case shows, this is not always so, for the parents can, and unfortunately only too often do, fortify the evil in the child's soul, preying upon the child's ignorance to make him the slave of their complexes. In our case, this attempt on the part of the father is quite obvious. It is perfectly clear why he wanted to marry his daughter to his brutish creature. He wanted to keep her and make her his slave forever. What he did is but a crass exaggeration of what is done by thousands of so-called respectable educated people who have their own share in this educational dust heap of enforced discipline. The fathers who allow their children no independent possession of their own emotions, who fondle their daughters with ill-concealed eroticism and tyrannical passion, who keep their sons in leading strings, force them into callings and finally marry them off to suitably, and the mothers who even in the cradle excite their children with unhealthy tenderness, later on make them into slavish puppets, and then at last, out of jealousy, destroy their children's love life fundamentally. They all act not otherwise than this stupid and brutal bore. It will be asked wherein lies the parents' magic power to bind their children to themselves, as with iron fetters, often for the whole of their lives. The psychoanalyst knows that it is nothing but the sexuality on both sides. We are always trying not to admit the child's sexuality. That view only comes from willful ignorance, which happens to be very prevalent again just now. I have not given any real analysis of these cases. We therefore do not know what happened within the hearts of these puppets of fate when they were children. A profound insight into a child's mind as it grows and lives, hitherto unattainable, is given in Freud's contribution to the first half-yearly volume of Jahrbuch für Psychoanalytisch und Psychopathologisch Forschungen. If I venture, after Freud's masterly presentation, to offer another small contribution to the study of the child mind, it is because the psychoanalytic record of cases seems to me always valuable. Case 4. An eight-year-old boy, intelligent, rather delicate-looking, is brought to me by his mother, on account of enuresis. During the consultation, the child always hangs on to his mother, a pretty, youthful woman. The parent's marriage is a happy one, but the father is strict, and the boy, the eldest child, is rather afraid of him. The mother compensates for the father's strictness by corresponding tenderness, to which the boy responds so much that he never gets away from his mother's apron strings. He never plays with his schoolfellows, never goes alone into the streets unless he has to go to school. He fears the boy's roughness and violence, and plays thoughtful games at home or helps his mother with housework. He is extremely jealous of his father. He cannot bear it when the father shows tenderness to the mother. I took the boy aside and asked him about his dreams. He dreams very often of a black snake which wants to bite his face. Then he cries out and his mother has to come from the next room to his bedside. In the evening he goes quietly to bed, but when he falls asleep it seems to him that a wicked black man with a saber or gun lies on his bed, a tall, thin man who wants to kill him. His parents sleep in the adjoining room. It often seems to him that something dreadful is going on there, as if there are great black snakes or wicked men who want to kill his mama. Then he has to cry out and his mother comes to comfort him. 
Every time he wets his bed, he calls his mother, who has to settle him down again in dry things. The father is a tall, thin man. Every morning he stands at the washstand, naked in full view of the child, to perform a thorough ablution. The child also tells me that at night he is often suddenly waked from sleep by a strange sound in the next room. Then he is always horribly afraid, as if something dreadful were going on in there. Some struggle, but his mother quiets him, says there's nothing to be afraid of. It is not difficult to see whence comes the black snake, and who the wicked man is, and what is happening in the next room. It is equally easy to understand the boy's aim when he calls out for his mother. He is jealous and separates her from the father. This he does also in the daytime whenever he sees his father caressing her. So far the boy is simply his father's rival for his mother's love. But now comes the circumstance that the snake and the bad man also threaten him. There happens to him the same thing as to his mother in the next room. Thus he identifies himself with his mother and proposes a similar relationship for himself with his father. That is, owing to his homosexual component, which feels like a woman towards his father. What enuresis signifies in this case is, from the Freudian standpoint, not difficult to understand. The Micturitian dream throws light upon it. Let me refer to an analysis of the same kind in my article, L'analyse de rêve en air psychologique, 1909. Enuresis must be regarded as an infantile sex surrogate. In the dream life of adults, too, it is easily used as a cloak for the urge of sexual desire. This little example shows what goes on in the mind of an eight-year-old boy when he is in a position of too much dependence upon his parents, but the blame is also partly due to the too strict father and the too indulgent mother. The infantile attitude here, it is evident, is nothing but infantile sexuality. If now we survey all the far-reaching possibilities of the infantile constellation, we are forced to say that in essence our life's fate is identical with the fate of our sexuality. If Freud and his school devote themselves first and foremost to tracing out the individual's sexuality, it is certainly not in order to excite piquant sensations, but to gain a deeper insight into the driving forces that determine the individual's fate. In this we are not saying too much, rather understating the case. If we can strip off the veils, shrouding the problem of individual destiny, we can afterward widen our view from the history of the individual to the history of nations. And first of all, we can look at the history of religions, at the history of the fantasy systems of whole peoples and epochs. The religion of the Old Testament elevated to the paterfamilias, to the Jehovah of the Jews, whom the people had to obey in fear and dread. The patriarchs are an intermediate stage towards the deity. The neurotic fear and dread of the Jewish religion, the imperfect, not to say unsuccessful, attempt at the sublimation of a still too barbarous people, gave rise to the excessive severity of the Mosaic law, the ceremonial constraint of the neurotic. Only the prophets succeeded in freeing themselves from this constraint. In them, the identification with Jehovah, the complete sublimation, is successful. They became the fathers of the people. Christ, the fulfillment of prophecy, put an end to this fear of God and taught mankind that the true relation to the Godhead is love. Thus he destroyed the ceremonial constraint of the law and gave the example of a personal loving relationship to God. The later imperfect sublimation of the Christian mass leads again to the ceremonial of the church, from which occasionally the minds capable of sublimation among the saints and reformers have been able to free themselves. Not without cause, therefore, does modern theology speak of inner or personal experiences as having great enfranchising power. For always the order of love transmutes the dread and constraint into a higher, freer type of feeling. What we see in the development of the world process, the original source of the changes in the Godhead, we also see in the individual. 
Parental power guides the child like a higher controlling fate, but when he begins to grow up, there begins also the conflict between the infantile constellation and the individuality. The parental influence dating from the prehistoric, infantile, period is repressed, sinks into the unconscious, but is not thereby eliminated. By invisible threads it directs the individual creations of the ripening mind as they appear. Like everything that has passed into the unconscious, the infantile constellation sends up into consciousness dim, foreboding feelings, feelings of mysterious guidance and opposing influences. Here are the roots of the first religious sublimations. In the place of the father, with his constellating virtues and faults, there appears, on the one hand, an altogether sublime deity, on the other, the devil. In modern times, for the most part largely whittled away by the perception of one's own moral responsibility. Elevated love is attributed to the former, a lower sexuality to the latter. As soon as we approach the territory of the neurosis, the antithesis is stretched to the utmost limit. God becomes the symbol of the most complete sexual repression, the devil the symbol of sexual lust. Thus it is that the conscious expression of the father constellation, like every expression of an unconscious complex when it appears in consciousness, gets its Janus face, its positive and negative components. A curious, beautiful example of this crafty play of the unconscious is seen in the love episode of the Book of Tobias. Sarah, the daughter of Raguel and Ekbatana, desires to marry, but her evil fate wills it that seven times, one after another, she chooses a husband who dies on the marriage night. The evil spirit Asmodi, by whom she is persecuted, kills these husbands. She prays to Jehovah to let her die rather than suffer this shame again. She is despised even by her father's maidservants. The eighth bridegroom, Tobias, is sent to her by God. He, too, is led into the bridal chamber. Then the old Raguel, who has only pretended to go to bed, gets up again and goes out and digs his son-in-law's grave beforehand, and in the morning sends a maid to the bridal chamber to make sure of the expected death. But this time Asmodi's part is played out. Tobias is alive. Unfortunately, medical etiquette forbids me to give a case of hysteria, which fits in exactly with the above instance, except that there were not seven husbands, but only three, ominously chosen under all the signs of the infantile constellation. Our first case, too, comes under this category, and in our third we see the old peasant at work preparing to dedicate his daughter to a like fate. As a pious and obedient daughter, compare her beautiful prayer in chapter 3. Sarah is brought about the unusual sublimation and cleavage of the father complex, and on the one side has elevated her childish love to the adoration of God, on the other has turned the obsessive force of her father's attraction into the persecuting demon Osmodi. The legend is so beautifully worked out that it displays the father in his twofold aspect, on the one hand as the inconsolable father of the bride, on the other as the secret digger of his son-in-law's grave, whose fate he foresees. This beautiful fable has become a cherished paradigm for my analysis. For by no means infrequent are such cases where the father demon has laid his hand upon his daughter, so that her whole life long, even when she does marry, there is never a true union, because her husband's image never succeeds in obliterating the unconscious and eternally operative infantile father ideal. This is valid not only for daughters, but equally for sons. A fine instance of such a father constellation is given in Dr. Brill's recently published Psychological Factors in Dementia Precox, an analysis. In my experience, the father is usually the decisive and dangerous object of the child's fantasy, and if ever it happens to be the mother, I have been able to discover behind her a grandfather to whom she belonged in her heart. 
I must leave this question open. My experience does not go far enough to warrant a decision. It is to be hoped that the experience of the coming years will sink deeper shafts into this still dark land, which I have been able but momentarily to light up, and will discover to us more the secret workshop of that fate-deciding demon of whom Horace says, Scit genios natale comes quid temperat astrum, natre deos humane, mortales in unum, quodque caput, vultu mutabilis, albus et ater. End of chapter 3